TED Talks are recorded live at the TED Conference and produced with WNYC New York Public Radio. This episode features author and idea generator Charles Ledbetter. TED Talks are made possible through the support of BMW, where ideas are everything. Here's Charles Ledbetter. Let me just ask you to start with this simple question. Uh, Who invented the mountain bike? Because traditional economic theory would say, well, the mountain bike was probably invented by some big bike corporation that had a big R&D lab where they were thinking up new projects, and it came out of there. It didn't come from there. Uh, Another answer might be, well, it came from a sort of lone genius working in his garage who, working away on different kinds of bikes, comes up with a bike out of uh, thin air. It didn't come from there. The mountain bike... Uh, came from users, came from young users, particularly a group in Northern California, who were frustrated with traditional racing bikes, which are those sort of bikes that Eddie Merckx rode or your big brother, and they're very glamorous, uh, but also frustrated with the bikes that your dad rode, which were sort of had big handlebars like that, and they were too heavy. So they got the frames from these big bikes, put them together with the gears from the, mountain, uh, from the racing bikes, got the brakes from motorcycles, and sort of mixed and matched various ingredients. And for the first, I don't know, three to five years of their life, mountain bikes were known as clunkers. And they were just made in a community of bikers, uh, mainly in Northern California. And then one of these companies that was importing parts uh, for the clunkers decided to set up in business, start selling them to other people. And gradually, another company emerged out of that, Marin. uh, And it probably was, I don't know, 10, maybe even 15 years before the big bike companies realized there was a market. 30 years later, mountain bike sales and mountain bike equipment account for 65% of bike sales in America. That's $58 billion. This is a category entirely created by consumers that would not have been created by the mainstream bike market because they couldn't see the need, the opportunity, they didn't have the incentive to innovate. Uh, The traditional view, still enshrined in much of the way that we think about creativity in organizations, in government, is that creativity is about special people in special places, elite universities, R&D labs in the forests, water, uh, maybe special rooms in companies, painted funny colors, um, you know, bean bags, maybe the odd table, football table, um, special people, special places, think up special ideas. Then you have a pipeline that takes the ideas down to the waiting consumers who are passive. They can say yes or no to the invention. That's the idea of creativity. What's the policy recommendation out of that if you're in government or you're running a large company? More special people, more special places. Build creative clusters in uh, cities. Create more R&D parks, so on and so forth. Well, this view, I think, is increasingly wrong. I think it's always been wrong, because I think always creativity has been highly collaborative, and it's probably been largely interactive. But it's increasingly wrong, and one of the reasons it's wrong is that the ideas are flowing back up the pipeline. The ideas are coming back from the consumers, and they're often ahead of the producers, Why is that? Well, one uh, issue is that radical innovation, when you've got ideas that affect a large number of technologies or people, have a great deal of uncertainty attached to them. The payoffs to innovation are greatest where the uncertainty is highest. And when you get a radical innovation, it's often very uncertain how it can be applied. The whole history of telephony is a story of dealing with that uncertainty. 
the very first landline telephones, uh, the inventors thought that they would be used to, for people to listen in to live performances from West End theatres. When the mobile telephone companies invented SMS, they had no idea what it was for. It was only when that technology got into the hands of teenage users that they invented the use. So the more radical the innovation, the more the uncertainty, the more you need innovation in use to work out what a technology is for. The second reason why users are more and more important is that they are the source of big disruptive innovations. Uh, if you want to find the big new ideas, it's often difficult to find them in mainstream markets in big organizations. Big corporations have an inbuilt tendency to reinforce past success. They've got so much sunk in it that it's very difficult for them to spot emerging new markets. Emerging new markets, then, are the breeding grounds for passionate users. Best example, um, who in the music industry 30 years ago would have said, yes, let's invent a musical form which is all about dispossessed black men in ghettos expressing their frustration with the world through a form of music that many people find initially quite difficult to listen to. That sounds like a winner. We'll go with it. <laughs> so what happens? Rap music is created by the users. They do it on their own tapes, with their own recording equipment. They distribute it themselves. 30 years later, rap music is the dominant musical form of popular culture, would never have come from the big companies. Had to start, this is the third point, with these pro-ams. This is the, the phrase that I've used in uh, some stuff which I've done with a think tank in London called Demos, where we've been looking at these people who are amateurs, i.e. they do it for the love of it, but they want to do it to very high standards. And across a whole range of fields, from software, astronomy, um, natural sciences, vast areas of um, leisure and culture like kite surfing, so on and so forth. You find people who work at their leisure, if you like. They take their leisure very seriously. They acquire skills, they invest time, uh, they use technology that's getting cheaper. It's not just the internet, uh, cameras, design technology, uh, leisure technology, surfboards, so on and so forth. Largely through globalization, a lot of this equipment has got a lot cheaper more knowledgeable consumers, more educated, more able to connect with one another, more able to do things together. Consumption, in that sense, is an expression of their productive potential. Why we found uh, people were interested in this is that at work, they don't feel very expressed. Uh, they don't feel as if they're doing something that really matters to them. Uh, so they pick up these kinds of activities. This has huge organizational implications for very large areas of life. Take astronomy as an example. And there's a, a big telescope in northern England called Jodrell Bank. And when I was a kid, it was amazing because the moonshots would take off and this thing would move on rails and it was huge. It was absolutely enormous. Now, six amateur astronomers working with the internet, with Dobsonian digital telescopes, which are pretty much open source, uh, with some light sensors uh, developed over the last 10 years, the internet, they can do what Jodrell Bank could only do 30 years ago. So here in astronomy, you have this vast explosion of new productive resources. The users can be producers. What does this mean then for our organizational landscape? Well, just imagine a world for the moment, divided into two uh, camps. Over here, 
you've got the old traditional corporate model. Special people, special places, patent it, push it down the pipeline to largely waiting passive consumers. Over here, let's imagine we've got Wikipedia, Linux, and beyond open source. Well, the first thing you can say is there is a great big struggle between these two organizational forms. What we're seeing is a complete corruption of the idea of patents and copyright, meant to be a way to incentivize innovation, uh, meant to be a way to orchestrate the dissemination of knowledge. They are increasingly being used by large companies to create thickets of patents to prevent innovation taking place. There's going to be a tremendous struggle. But also, there's going to be tremendous movement from Uh, the open to the closed. What you'll see, I think, is two things that are critical. The first is, can we really survive on volunteers? If this is so critical, do we not need it funded, organized, supported in much more structured ways? What kind of changes do we need in public policy and funding to make that possible? What's the role of the BBC, for instance, in that world? What should be the role of public policy? And finally, what I think you will see is the intelligent, closed organizations moving increasingly in the open direction. So it's not going to be a contest between two camps, but in between them, you'll find all sorts of interesting places that people will occupy. New organizational models coming about, mixing closed and open in tricky ways. And those organizational models, it turns out, are incredibly powerful. And the people who can uh, understand them will be very, very successful. Let me just give you one final example of what that means. I was in Shanghai in an office block built on what was a rice paddy five years ago, one of the 2,500 skyscrapers they've built in Shanghai in the last 10 years. And I was having dinner with this guy called Timothy Chan. Timothy Chan set up an internet business in uh, 2000, didn't go into the internet, kept his money, uh, decided to go into computer games. He runs a company called Shanda, which is the largest computer games company in China. 9,000 servers all over China, has 250 million subscribers. At any one time, there are 4 million people playing one of his games. How many people does he employ to service that population? 500 people. Well, how can he service 250 million people from 500 employees? Because basically, he doesn't service them. He gives them a platform, he gives them some rules, he gives them the tools, and then he kind of orchestrates the conversation, he orchestrates the action. But actually, a lot of the content is created by the users themselves. And it creates a kind of stickiness between the community and the company, which is really, really powerful. Best measure of that is you go into one of his games, um, you create a character that you develop in the course of the game. If, for some reason, your credit card bounces or um, there's some other problem, you lose your character. You've got two options. One option is... Uh, you can create a new character right from scratch, but with none of the history of your player. That costs about $100. Or you can get on a plane, fly to Shanghai, queue up outside Shanda's offices, uh, cost probably $600, $700, and reclaim your character, get your history back. Every morning, there are 600 people queuing outside their offices to reclaim these characters. So this is about companies built on communities, that provide communities with tools, 
uh, resources, platforms in which they can share. He's not open source, but it's very, very powerful. So here is one of the challenges, I think, for people like me who uh, do a lot of work with government. Uh, if you're a games company uh, and you've got a million players in your game, you only need 1% of them to be co-developers, contributing ideas, and you've got a development workforce of 10,000 people. Imagine you could take all the children in education in Britain and 1% of them were co-developers of education. What would that do to the resources available to the education system? Or if you got 1% of the patients in the NHS to, in some sense, be co-producers of health. The, the reason why, despite all the efforts to cut it down, to constrain it, to hold it back, why these open models will still start emerging with tremendous force is that they multiply our productive resources. And one of the reasons they do that is that they turn users into producers, consumers into designers. Thank you very much. That was Charles Ledbetter, recorded at TED Global in Oxford, England, July 2005. TED Talks are produced by WNYC New York Public Radio for TED. TED Talks are made possible through the support of BMW, where ideas are everything. For more information on TED, visit TED.com.